Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the most interesting stories of the week comes as a California couple has filed a lawsuit against a fertility clinic that mixed up their embryos with another couple. Daphna and Alexander Cardinali carried the baby of another couple, gave birth to a baby girl, and raised her for four months until the couples decided to swap babies. The other couple involved was implanted with the Cardinali's embryo. For more on what happened and the effort to never let this happen again, we'll speak to Adam Wolf, attorney for the Cardinali family. This traumatic event will be with Alexander and Daphna for the rest of their lives. Alexander and Daphna, like millions of Americans, went to a fertility center because they were having trouble conceiving. That fertility center created an embryo for them and transferred an embryo to Daphna. Nine months later, when she gives birth, they were shocked, completely surprised, to say the least, when that child looks nothing like them. As it turns out, the clinic gave an embryo to Alexander and to Daphna that was not related to them. It was not their embryo. They made Daphna be an unwilling, unknowing surrogate to a stranger. Yeah. And, um, you know, when the baby was finally born, uh, as you mentioned, it, it didn't really look like them. They have another daughter who has like blonde hair and all that. But the new baby's complexion was a little different. It had darker hair. And Alexander, the father, was kind of like a, a little concerned. He was asking the questions. They were saying, well, you know, we don't know what's going on. You know, we're, this is our baby. She carried it to term. And they kind of brushed it away for a little bit. But kind of those concerns kept persisting, and that led them to get a DNA test at that point. That's right. They got a DNA test approximately two months after the birth, and the results were horrifying. It showed that neither Alexander nor Daphna was related to their baby. How did that happen? It's because the clinic mixed up their embryo with the embryo of a complete stranger, another customer of the clinic. Those couples had their children of each other. And so they needed to do a baby swap, which they did about four months into their children's lives. That's the crazy part right here. So, you know, they did have uh, each other's respective babies for about three months when they really realized that another month before everything kind of happened. And they did end up swapping the babies. I read in a couple other stories that they were getting together, spending time with each other. And it just kind of became a little untenable to the point where they both couples agreed, OK, we're going to switch our respective babies to have our own biological kids at that point, but even still, all that awkwardness kind of lingered. It's more than awkwardness that lingers. I mean, it is anger and fear and anxiety. I mean, you think about this from Daphne's perspective. She didn't get to birth her baby. Right. She didn't get to breastfeed her baby upon birth. She didn't feel her baby kick in utero. That The first time they saw their baby was when she was four months old over a picture on text message. And she had already been named, too. They had, she already had, a, uh, I think her name was Zoe at that point. And uh, I think they, the, the couple decided to, to keep calling her that. Now, for uh, as I mentioned, there is a lawsuit that's been filed now. For their part, though, what does the California Center for Reproductive Health say happened? How did they say that this mix-up occurred? We don't know how this happened. And there's no good explanation for it. 
this should not happen. This cannot happen. And it should never happen again. And what, are, uh, what, are the, what is the lawsuit seeking? I know, that, I mean, obviously there's a lot of emotional trauma that kind of comes with this, but, but what are you guys seeking through the lawsuit? You know, we can't go back in time and change what happened. Nothing will ever make this right. We are seeking accountability from California Center for Reproductive Health and Dr. Moore. And we also want to shine a spotlight on this so that we can begin a conversation that leads to regulations and make sure this doesn't happen again. I saw somewhere that I guess uh, you guys might be looking for uh, a jury trial as well, uh, just to kind of play everything out and get as much of the information out there, uh, I'm assuming, right? So we can kind of figure out what truly happened there. Correct. I mean, the first thing we're going to do is find out what happened, go through the discovery phase of the litigation. And then um, if it gets this far, we will try this case to a jury where jurors are going to need to assess what is the right amount of compensation for this complete tragedy. And in the end right now, I know there's a lot of trauma, obviously, for uh, Alexander and Daphna uh, with what's going on and everything. But I did read in another story that they have become close friends with the other couple. The other couple hasn't been interested in being identified or speaking out publicly and all this, but they do often get together. All of this happened, mind you, in late 2019. So a lot of all of this kind of transpired throughout the pandemic as well. These two couples going through this whole ordeal and as I mentioned, they spend time with each other, spend holidays with each other. So at least on that part, they've become good friends in that sense. They have become close. They still see their birth daughter, although not nearly as much as they used to. And they maintain those relationships. But those are relationships that never should have happened in the first place. Nobody should be put in this position. I mean, it's, you know, listen, I'm a, I'm a father. To think about meeting my child. At four months old, having been given a name and not been there in the delivery room is horrifying to me. A story to definitely follow and see as this uh, lawsuit progresses. And, you know, hopefully we can get some more details out of this. Adam Wolf, attorney for the Cardinale family. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We're learning a little bit more about what happened at the deadly World Festival in Houston. We're learning now that a ninth person has died. She was a 22-year-old college senior who was critically injured and just passed away. Travis Scott was only minutes into his show at the Astroworld Festival when at least one Houston officer radioed over a police channel that the main stage had been compromised by a massive crowd surge. Authorities have opened a criminal investigation but have not assigned any fault yet. Many of the questions still remain on how things escalated so quickly, but crowd surges like the one that happened that night happen fast and often go unnoticed until it's too late. Emergency plans for the event covered things like active shooters, but nothing in the case of a crowd surge. For more on how these crowd surges are difficult to manage, we'll speak to Aiza Garcia-Hodges, reporter at NBC News. One of the things that, that experts in this, in this crowd management industry kind of say is that they're very hard to prevent, right? There are certain things you can do in terms of, you know, pre-planning the event. It's important to consider the way that you structure barricades. It's important to consider how many crowd managers you have on site. But when something kind of, you know, starts one of these, it's very difficult to stop it. And it's and at points, it's very difficult to prevent it. You know, even doing all of the prep work to try to do that, the crowd just kind of can take on a, a mind of its own. And what's really dangerous about them is that they're hard to detect. You know, many times, it's not like a situation with something super unfortunate, like a, like an active shooter situation, 
or a fire that's very visible that people can clearly see. This is something that's often started by, you know, something that most people don't detect. It's not readily noticeable. And so many times people aren't even aware of the imminent danger that's around them. And then the momentum just takes them and, and, you know, they're not able to really, not that they could do much, right? That's the other thing that's hard about this is that like, there's no way that one person or or even a few people are going to be able to withstand or fight back against a throng of people pushing forward. You know, I myself have been caught up in these crowd surges before I've been to my fair share of concerts and and festivals, you know, big festivals too. And you're right, they are hard to to detect because, you know, when you're looking at a mass of people, when you're in it, it moves very fast. But, you know, when you're standing away from it, sometimes you can't see how fast things are moving. And what really happens with one of the really dangerous parts is the oxygen really gets sucked up out of a big group of people, regardless if you're inside or outside. It gets hot, you know, it gets claustrophobic, and that oxygen, boom, is just completely gone. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's obviously, you know, that's why immediacy in terms of it's so important, right? So it's very difficult to detect them, but the people who are trained to be able to do this, you know, you need to have them be properly trained and you need to have the right number of them on site. Um, You know, there are national organizations that kind of put out guidelines for best practices and suggest that there should be a minimum for any crowd that's bigger than 250 people. You should have a minimum of one crowd manager for every 250 people. And that crowd manager is essentially tasked with and has been trained in knowing how to address the exits, how to get people and, and, you know, communicate that these are the exits, these are the entryways, you know, this is the plan to take when something like this goes out of control. But obviously that person has to make sure that, you know, they don't succumb to the panic. And, and obviously it's a situation where people are so prone to panic. And when that happens, it's very difficult to kind of think rationally. Totally. And they have to be in the proper position to be effective as well. When you have a huge crowd, I mean, there's no crowd manager inside one of those crowd surges, you know, they're on the periphery. So it's tough for them to even get anything going there. You know, we're seeing a criminal investigation that's been launched. We're seeing over 20 lawsuits that have been filed so far. And we're just hearing a lot of it. You You mentioned training, a very specific thing. There was a a report from Rolling Stone talking to some of the uh, people that were hired as security staff there and how quick the process was. They went through like a five-hour orientation meeting. They took a little quiz that the leader was kind of highlighting answers as they go, open book style. And the people that uh, were working some of this, they said, you know, nobody trained us to handle any type of crowd control type measures. And we're seeing some of the... uh, plans that the festival actually had for it and none of it really mentioned anything about crowd surges there was things about active shooters other stuff really bad weather nothing about crowd surges or how to control a crowd yeah i mean and i think you know i think we have to let the investigation play out right it is currently ongoing i know that houston pd is working with several other organizations including the fbi to to try to you know figure out what went wrong and what happened And I think it's a little early to speculate, but from the industry experts that I've spoken with or that I've, you know, read what they have put out and the guidelines that they've published on this, it does seem to be that there should be proper training, but that a lot of that training is kind of common sense, right? It's just about knowing the exits. It doesn't necessarily have to be extensive. So I think, again, it's too early to speculate on, you know, what went wrong or whether they were trained properly or not. But the sense I get is that a lot of this is just 
stuff that can be learned pretty quickly and that is common sense and is just about making sure that the people know where the exits are, know where the, you know, know how to position the barricade, things like that. So I do think it'll we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff, uh, you know, with so many people involved in this thing, it's kind of hard to, uh, you know, get that investigation done quickly. The police chief, uh, Troy Finner, did say that he spoke to Travis Scott and his team before the concert to express concerns about what's going on. And they received them and everything was a respectful meeting and all that. But, yeah, I mean, just uh, with this crush of, I guess, 50,000 people that that were there at this uh, event, you know, it's just hard to control any type of crowd like that. So we'll continue to monitor all of this. Aisa Garcia Hodges, reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We've been learning a lot about mRNA because of the COVID vaccines, but the next big thing for RNA could be fixing moldy food. The next generation of pesticides and fungicides could use RNA to target very specific insects and fungi. One particular type of fungus they hope to target is responsible for at least $10 billion in damage to crops every year. For more on all of this, we'll speak to Matt Reynolds, senior writer at Wired. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting. And, and like you say, it's based on the same molecule, RNA, which is kind of you know, a certain type of genetic information. But really how this new kind of pesticide would work is based on a pretty cool trick that cells evolved billions and billions of years ago. So it's really, really basic part of functioning, really, that plants do, that fungi do, that humans do. And what cells do is they have this way of detecting genetic material that something like a virus might try and sneak into our cells. So what they do is they detect this rogue stuff and basically they use something called RNA interference to chop up that genetic material before it's turned into a protein that could do some bad stuff within the cell. And what scientists have realized and focused on over the past couple of decades, since, since the late 90s really, is that they can use this to make new pesticides. And what they do is essentially they trick the cells of a mold or a bug or a a beetle or something like that into attacking their own genetic information. So they chop up their own genetic information and it stops them producing proteins that might be really, really useful for helping that mold or helping that beetle live. So it's a way of making pests attack themselves rather than killing them from the outside. Right. And and you mentioned in the article, one of the particularly concerning things out there for farmers right now is this very specific fungus. It's very common, actually. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned if you leave strawberries in your fridge for too long, this kind of uh, gray green mold that grows on them. This is that one that we're talking about. But uh, for farmers, it can be responsible for at least $10 billion in damage every year. Some say it can be as high as 100 billion. So for them, it's a, a, a critical thing to get under control. Yeah, exactly. So it's this mold that's called botrytis. And if you've ever had moldy strawberries in the fridge, you've pretty much experienced botrytis yourself. And it's a really, really huge problem because not only can it attack crops in the field, it, it, it attacks you know, grapes and soft fruit like blueberries. You know, It can also happen after those crops have been harvested. And that's actually a huge problem because the way that harvesting works is that with existing pesticides, Farmers can't spray them very close to harvest because there are things called residue limits and there are legal limits on the amount of pesticides that can be in food when they're harvested. And what that means is if any of that mold, any of that botrytis is lurking on the leaves or lurking on the fruit, even if you don't see it at the point that it's harvest, by the time that maybe it goes to the store or maybe it's in transit in the truck, it can be kind of taken over. So actually, there's this really big problem that if you can't 
spray close to the time of harvesting, maybe you've got all this mold that you just don't know about. And this new category of pesticides and fungicides might help get over that problem. And what we're seeing is a handful of companies that are already working on sprays of this kind uh, to target this fungus, to target some other insects and whatnot. And, um, you know, there's still some time before they'll uh, be, could be approved and be widely used, but they're well on their way. And some of them are very much in the testing phase already. Yeah, absolutely. So there's one that's quite far along the way. Uh, it's, again, something called Colorado potato beetle, which if you're a potato farmer, I'm told is a really, really big deal. And that's a spray that's currently being evaluated by the Environmental Protection Agency. Maybe we'll get a result on that next summer. There's a whole bunch of other things. There's sprays that target moths. There are some moths that really, really love cabbage and they're a big problem. And there's another thing called the Varroa mite, which is a pest that infects honeybees and actually causes huge problems for honey farmers. And all of these different types of pests are being potentially, you know, could be solved by this RNA technology. There's loads and loads of different approaches that are in the works. And so, uh, you know, it, it all sounds very good. There's some pros and cons to this, obviously, though. Uh, you know, some of the pros, similar to the COVID vaccines that we have, things that we've been told is we can tweak these vaccines to target other uh, strains of the virus, things like that. And similar to that, in developing these RNA sprays, these pesticides, you can do something very similar, you know, tweak it slightly to target a different bug or a different uh, strain of mold and things like that. But some of the concerns that are, are really out there are resistance. There's already bugs and molds and things that are, you know, get this resistance to the current pesticides we have. And that's a big area of concern for these uh, RNA sprays as well. Yeah, exactly. And like you said, we've already got that problem. We have loads of herbicides and loads of pesticides, you know, resistant weeds and resistant bugs are really, really big problem. Now, when that comes to RNA pesticides in particular, they have this big advantage, like you said, Oscar, you can tweak them so they can attack a different gene. So maybe, oh, you know, maybe we're attacking their immune system and maybe they get resistant to that. So instead we'll attack something else, we'll attack how they respire or something like that. That's great, as long as you can get that molecule inside those cells. Now, if the pests evolve a way of becoming resistant to taking up RNA altogether, that's a massive problem because then it doesn't matter whether you change that genetic code and when it, whether you target a different gene, because you just can't get that molecule within the organism. And we know in the lab that you can induce this if you basically dose you know, a bunch of potato beetles with loads and loads of RNA pesticides, you can evolve so they have a very high level of resistance. But what we don't know is, well, if you use this in the field, are you using enough to cause this resistance? Or maybe I'm mixing it with other pesticides, so it'll be less of a problem. So there's definitely this really big question mark that we're just not too sure about at the moment. Yeah, I just, you know, really love how using science kind of continues to improve on all this stuff and, and the related technologies, right? We're talking about vaccines to kill viruses, uh, respiratory viruses for to cure pandemics. And we're also using <laughs> very similar technology to fight uh, fungus and keep our crops healthy. So uh, it's just interesting, this cross section. And for this, uh, these RNA sprays, you know, they're not meant to... Uh, completely take away other pesticides. They're just going to be new tools to be used. So a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Matt Reynolds, senior writer at Wired. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Oscar. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating. 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.